because there would be too much reading of, of passages and things to follow along anyway. But So let's go ahead and open with prayer. And how many love God's word? Amen. So, Father, we just thank you tonight as we get into the word of the Lord. I thank you for speaking through me under a mighty anointing as your Holy Spirit even now is moving upon every one of us to help us be good soil and hearts and minds, to have eyes and ears to be able to see and hear and good soil, that the, the word of God will go forth out as living seeds of truth that are sown into good soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Holy Spirit, and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, I thank you for the, uh, the scriptures. The Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed, but Lord, we agree together as a church. We submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything that would try to hinder this from getting where it's supposed to accomplish and what it's supposed to. We command you to be bounded back off right now in Jesus' name. But I thank you for the winds of the Holy Spirit making sure this blow out to the nations to get everywhere it's supposed to, accomplish everything it's supposed to. And we know your word never returns void, but will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. So, Lord, we thank you for it now. Help us to really lock in to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, and the grace to get everything out of this you want us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I love this time of the year, the cool weather, and I love the, the various feasts and, and celebrations we have. And so as we talk tonight about Hanukkah, a lot of Christians are not taught, so they just don't know. And so I want to take the opportunity to kind of share some things that our God has done. And I think about in the book of Psalms where it says to remember the wonders of the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to remember the wonders of God down through the ages. So John chapter 10, verse 22, a lot of people probably read over this and just kind of didn't realize what they were reading. So John chapter 10, verse 22, it says, at that time, the feast of dedication. So Hanukkah means dedication. So this is Hanukkah took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. As, uh, you know, Hanukkah is always in winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. This would have been where the menorah, the Hanukkah, would be set up, and people would be there enjoying the lights, you know. So <clears throat> Jesus thought enough of Hanukkah to keep it, and there is a very special message in Hanukkah. And so something I'd like to point out is this. Um, we would not have... Christmas if it wasn't for Hanukkah. It's very important people realize that. The story of Hanukkah is that Satan was trying to do everything he could to stop the coming of the Messiah, which we'll talk about that. And God brought supernatural deliverance, and it paved the way for the stage to be set for the Messiah to come. It's how many knows the devil always overplays his hand. But he was trying to stop the coming of the Messiah. And so this year, Hanukkah begins on December the 18th and goes for eight days. And let me just give a little bit of background, or at least some interesting facts to look at. So we know those that have studied the Bible, we know that Daniel was given great revelation. So he saw Nebuchadnezzar, he saw the Babylonian Empire, then it would give way to the Medes and Persians. 
And then as Israel returned back to rebuild their temple in the days of the Persians, then they would be the rise of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. So this is kind of this time frame that after Alexander died, he split up his kingdom to his four generals. Well, the Middle East was called the Seleucid part of the Greek Empire. And the guy that became the king over that was Antiochus Epiphanes. And they're always bent on world domination, okay? And so the other superpower was Egypt and in the south, and that was under Ptolemy. And so there was this war between these two world superpowers of who was going to conquer the other. But the Seleucid Empire, they never could defeat the south. And I think Antiochus Epiphanes got so angry because he never could conquer there in the south. And I think he took a lot of that out on the people around him, which obviously would be Israel. But let me share a few interesting things. So Antiochus Epiphanes is also a very clear picture and type of the Antichrist to come. So one of the messages that we need to understand about Hanukkah is it, it is a foreshadowing of end time prophecy. So a lot of times with our mindset here in the West, the way we view things is just simply like a linear timeline. How many have ever seen that when you open your history books and all that? You know, it's the way we think. But I had a friend of mine one time that had this really long fold, folded out paper along the wall, and it went through this extremely lengthy history of different parts of the world. It's really interesting, but we think that way. We think linear what was, what is, and what will be, and we see it like that. But the Hebrew mindset about prophecy is a little bit different. There is a linear aspect, but the way that the Hebrew mind thinks is this, it's also a cycle. So what was will be again, okay? So let me give you an example. Under Nebuchadnezzar, what happened? He set up this big idol and demanded that people worship him and his idol, right? Remember that? And Shabrat, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, refused to do so. Later on, Antiochus Epiphanes does the exact same thing. And then we know that one day in the future, the Antichrist is going to do the exact same thing again. The Bible says he will. He's going to set himself up in the temple, declare himself to be God. He's going to build an idol, some kind of an image, and he's going to demand that people worship him and worship his image. So there's kind of a cyclic type of mindset in the Hebrew study of prophecy of things continuing to repeat itself. And I think that we understand that history tends to repeat itself. And something I've been covering over the last couple of weeks with the God of Blood Covenant is looking at some of the spiritual battlegrounds behind the scenes because the Apostle Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers without belaboring the point we know that there's ancient fallen angel spirits over different territories. And as we've already discussed, that spirit Gog that seems to be over Russia, the Prince of Persia over Iran. There's some here in America. I think they hang out in Washington. I don't think anybody would argue with that. And they, they hang out in places, though, where decisions are made. And they're trying to manipulate. And so you see down through the ages, you see that these fallen angels, these principalities, manipulate rulers and governments and what are they always trying to do? They're trying to make things very anti-Christ and to oppose the things of God in their respective nation or region and try to snuff it out. 
How many are seeing that in America? You see, we have, a, we have an incredible Judeo-Christian heritage, but there's princes and powers behind the scenes that are trying to manipulate government, trying to manipulate leaders, manipulate legislation, trying to snuff out any trace of God and Christianity out of our heritage here, out of our culture. So we see that that happens. That happened in the days of Antiochus, Epiphanes. He, he was trying to snuff out anything to do with God. It was a very antichrist type of spirit. And this, remember, we talked about this. The antichrist spirit is also the same spirit of anti-Semitism because it has to do with the stopping of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many knows the devil knows prophecy? He knows Jesus is coming. He's trying to stop it, but he's not going to be able to. And then we talked about Jacob and Esau. And we talked about the Olam Eba. We talked about the ancient hatred. That down through the ages, there has been some type of a deep-seated hatred that festers against God's blood covenant people. And so again, we see this in the days of Epiphanies. This was something that was a, a hatred toward anything to do with the God of Abraham and what God was doing in those days, trying to stop it. So with that said, we've been discussing as society is going that direction, we're moving rapidly into the end of the end times, the coming of the Lord is near, that we need a fresh revelation of the blood of Jesus. We need a fresh revelation of the God of blood covenant, the God who is faithful to the promises of the blood covenant. And just like in the days of Moses at Passover, even though the plagues were coming down and, and it became really dark in Egypt, what happened in the land of Goshen, they still had light. So there can be a supernatural protection from things that are coming upon the earth. And I believe just like Israel painted the blood of the lamb over their doorpost of their home, it brought protection. How, mu how much more so does the blood of Jesus now bring protection, you see? So there's something about understanding the God of blood covenant, understanding the communion table, bringing our lives not only under the blood, but bringing our lives under the promises that are connected to that blood covenant for supernatural protection, provision, health being sustained through these end times that we're living. And I believe it's very important that we get some revelation about these things. That's why I'm sharing along these lines because I, I can't go back and go into other sermons, but the Gog-Megog war seems to be getting ready to happen. There's a lot of end time prophecy that's been unfolding Things are happening, and we need to be up under the blood of Jesus and know who we are and what we have in Christ, the promises that are available to us that we possess by faith. So fight, fight the war from an understanding that Christ has already won it, and we are enforcing his victory. It's not really a striving so much as it is a resting in the finished work of the blood. So a lot of times I think people are trying to strive too much. It's an understanding of who we are and what we already have, an understanding of what Christ already paid for, for us to be able to walk in that. And just like I talked a lot through this series about like walking through the bloody soil with Abraham as God, the oath and blessings of Abraham, we share in that. I mean, the Bible is very clear about this. And so we share in those blessings. And again, I can't go back and go back through that, but those that's been with me on this, you know what I'm talking about. So in the days of Antiochus, this was a couple hundred years before Jesus. So from Malachi to Matthew is 400 years. They call them the silent years. 
But this happened, I believe, around 167 or so. God was not really silent. It's just that, you know, in the days of, um, we, we, you know, celebrate Purim, but in the days of Esther, we just happened to have the scroll of Esther was canonized in our 66 books of the Bible, so we're more familiar with that story. Whereas the historical books of the Maccabees did not make it into the 66 books of the Bible. So therefore, we were kind of ignorant of the story. But this is nonetheless a great history that God, our God, the God we worship, brought a great deliverance. I mean, a supernatural victory in miracles and moved mightily among his people. So God was not really silent. It's just that a lot of Christians don't know this history. So let me give you just a quick uh, overview of what was going on during this time. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek person in this Syrian empire, and this was one of the world superpowers of this time. And so Israel was under that domination of the Greek empire. So that little Israel was there, but they were being ruled over by the Greek rulers, okay? And... During this time, this was the Middle East area, the Seleucid Empire, Epiphanes wanted to conquer Israel fully. Now, this is important. He sought to do away with God's word and culture and try to make all the Jews in Israel become Greek. Now, remember that because I'm going to be talking a little bit about that later. I feel that the, one of the greatest messages of Hanukkah is God is wanting a people that are holy and distinct unto him that are set apart from the world. Even though we're in the world, we are very different. We are not of the world. We're not like the world. And people should see the difference. But whenever Epiphanes, what he was trying to do was he wanted to do away with anything that had to do with the God of the Bible, any trace of it. And he wanted all of God's people to worship Greek gods to dress like the Greeks, to talk like the Greeks, and basically just become Greek. All right. So he tried to prevent things like what was under the law at this time. This was what God was doing at this time. Circumcision, Sabbath observance, celebrating the feast, keeping kosher diet, study of Torah, going to synagogue, like going to church. He was successful at temporarily stopping the temple rituals. And what he did was he went into the temple and he erected a large statue of Zeus. He sacrificed a pig on the altar to defile the altar. And then he poured the pig's broth over everything he could, like all the Torah scrolls and everything there. He desperately wanted to defile the temple area. And throughout the land of Israel, he went through and had his leaders erect shrines and altars throughout the land. And the people of Israel, they were trying to force them to offer sacrifices to the Greek gods on those altars throughout Israel. Some Jews seemed to be fine with this transition. They were going along with it to get along. But the overwhelming majority of God's people were deeply troubled and stayed totally devoted to God. Those who were disobedient to the Greeks were either tortured or killed or both. Many that were tortured their bodies were mutilated, and while they were still alive and breathing, they were crucified. Even some women whose sons that they had circumcised were strangled to death, and some were crucified with the dead bodies of their babies hung around their necks. 
Hebrews chapter 11 talks about those that were martyred and tortured. Some biblical scholars believe that this reference includes those that died taking a stand for the Lord against Epiphanes and the violent assault 167 years before Christ was born. Some people really stood their ground, but they died as martyrs standing their ground. If Epiphanes had been successful in the long-term extermination of God's people and culture, and had completely replaced it with his like he wanted to. He wanted to turn the temple of God into a temple to Greek, a Greek God like Zeus. Erasing anything to do with God out of that culture. If he had been successful at doing this, it would have delayed and hindered the coming of Jesus Christ. But God had already told through the prophet Daniel that he would give a little help during this time. And I don't think a little help meant like God wouldn't do very much. I think what he meant was this. The Maccabees, which I'll talk about, were small in number. But like the days of Gideon, they had a great victory. They were little, but they brought the help that was needed. The Maccabees were a family of faithful priests. Okay, so these were descendants of Aaron and they served faithfully at the temple. They loved God. They were doing at this time what God wanted done. They were officiating all the offerings that were brought to the temple. They were blessing the people. They were faithful. The king, the Syrian Greek king Epiphanes sent representatives throughout the land. And in fact, there was a city, Moedin. There was to be a sacrifice there to the Greek gods. Okay. So this was again Epiphanes sending his people into the city of Moedin, and they were supposed to offer up some kind of an offering there to Greek gods. And this is what started the whole revolution right here. A representative asked the influential priestly leader, Menahias, to do the offering as a pledge of his allegiance to the Greek king Epiphanes. And Menahias stated, Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion, neither to the right or to the left. But another Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer the sacrifice to the Greek gods. And just like Metahias' ancient ancestor, Phineas, how many remember the story of Phineas who burned with zeal and drove a spear through the people and it stopped the plague? Just like his ancient ancestor, Metahias burned with zeal for the Lord and he killed this apostate Jew right there on the spot which the law of Moses ordered would happen. But this started a war. The Maccabees, which is just a nickname, which means hammer, was a small group of, of priests, warrior priests, that rallied together for war, and others began to join them, and they were performing like guerrilla warfare. I mean, this was, you understand, they were going up against a world superpower. They couldn't take them on just man-to-man -man like this face-to-face. -face. They were outnumbered at, in every way the, the army was trained. They were not trained warriors. So what they were doing was they were operating in what we would call guerrilla warfare, and it was just kind of chipping away at the military over time. And these warrior priests rallied, and they began to, uh, to really strike the enemy. And after the death, though, eventually during this, there was a three-year bloody war. During the war, the father, Metahias, passed away. But his oldest son, Judah, took charge 
in this three-year bloody war, they managed, even though small in number, to push back the king and his large army, which was a supernatural victory. How many have read over and over in the scriptures about a supernatural victory that shouldn't have happened? What about the walls of Jericho? What about the days of Gideon? What about sometime David's conquest? What about in the days of Hezekiah when that angel went through there and slaughtered all? So, and what about the days of Jehoshaphat where he sent the, the priest to go in front and they were singing. They topped the hill and come down. The army was already dead. So we read over and over and over in Scripture that God gives supernatural victory in war. In the same way, God was with these Maccabees. He was with them to hammer away at this, uh, this military and over time defeat them and drive them back. And then as they did defeat them and drive them back after three years, um, the Maccabees began to, to re <clears throat> excuse me, rededicate the temple and cleanse it as holy unto God. They had to rebuild a new bronze altar because the previous altar had been defiled by the pig. After realizing that there was only enough oil for one day in the menorah. So let me go back. They had to spend some time to go through and cleanse the whole temple, okay? They had to rebuild from scratch, which would have taken some time, the bronze altar where all the offerings were offered. They had to rededicate everything as holy unto God. And after they did that, they found because there had to be a special oil that was prepared by the priest because it had to be specific for the temple use. And they only found one vial that was just enough for one day. And so they, it was almost pointless in lighting the menorah, but they said, well, we'll do it anyway. So they poured the oil in the menorah. And a lot of times they would use the old garments from the priest and they'd roll them up as a wick and put them in there. They lit the menorah. And they were expecting in one day the menorah would burn itself out, but it didn't. And so after two days, it stayed lit. After three days. And now they're realizing there's some kind of a supernatural thing going on here after four days, five days, six days, seven days. That menorah stayed lit for eight days. And that was just enough time for the priest to press more olives and get oil that was set apart. And so by the time that menorah burned out, they had more oil prepared that they can keep it lit. And so this was a great encouragement after such a horrific trial. The eight days the menorah speaks of miraculously stayed lit during that time. Um, that's why there's eight different candles that are on the Hanukkah because it has one, that's the Shamas, which is the center branch, which as I said earlier, this, this is in the sermon, okay? I said some things before service, but the middle branch always speaks of Christ. He said, I am the vine, you're the branches. And that shamas, which means servant candle, that servant branch is Christ. And from him is all the other fire spread to the other um, candles. So there's a nine branch, but eight of them speaks of the eight days of the miracle. And so... Every year on Kislev 25, that goes all the way back to like 165 B.C., after three years of this war on Kislev 25, there's a great celebration of Hanukkah. And this year it begins on December the 18th. It'll go for eight days. But these, this is the time to remember the supernatural victory. So the Hanukkah celebration involves a lighting of a new candle every night. So as I said earlier, you put the, <clears throat> the candle by the window 
And on night one, it's just the shamas and then one candle. But each night, you add a candle. So by the end of it, it's full flame. So on the eighth night, people that walk by a house are going to see that menorah lit up in the window. And you can't help but think about all the lights. Even at Christmas, what do we think about lights? Lights everywhere. In the same way, we're called to be a light to the world. What does it mean for us to be a light? It means for us to be a witness. So... As Christians, this is an extremely powerful time to remember. We obviously have Christmas around the same time as well, but without, as I said before, without Hanukkah, there wouldn't be a Christmas. It really was that serious. This was a major attack of the devil. The temple could have been destroyed, the culture done away with, but God brought a miracle. So the great warning for us today, what I take away from Hanukkah more than anything else, is that the king Epiphanes was trying to force God's people to become like the sinful world around them. He wanted them to assimilate into the world's idolatrous system of that day. As followers of Christ, there should be a huge difference in our lives compared to the world around us. We should stick out like a star in the night sky. So, you know, the stars aren't really noticeable until it starts getting dark, are they? And so the darker the world gets, the more that people should notice a difference in us. People should take note that we talk different, that we dress different, that we act different. People should notice that we're a new creation. This is a time to really be honest. You know, as my, one of my spiritual fathers, John Davis, always says, judgment day honesty. Being honest with God, being honest with ourselves. Uh, is our lives really, truly the way it needs to be before the Lord? As we're living in a time in America, and I know that A lot of people see this, but there's a lot of people that don't. We're living in a time where Satan has really been moving to try to make the church worldly. And it's becoming, I know I'm preaching to the choir, if you will, and people that follow us know this, but it's as though something, some kind of a deceptive spirit has come in. And it's more about entertainment and a social club and programs and things. It's moved away from the power of God. See, I remember the days, it really went long ago, in the 90s revivals, when, I mean, the fear of God, the conviction would be so strong. People would be gripped with the fear of God and would come down, running down to the altar and really get right with God. They they were convicted of their sin. They were repenting. They were getting things right with God. And their lifestyle would change. They would go home. They would throw out the junk. They would clean up their life. It was, they, it was a radical difference. And I remember when the power of God was present, we've seen this, my wife and I, many times, to deliver people from demonic power, to see people healed of various things, to see the gifts of the Spirit in operation. But Satan has been working overtime to try to get that Book of Acts Christianity shut down and to create something in its place that really doesn't have power to transform lives. It's just kind of pacifying people. You know, and this may fly in the face of a lot of things, but, you know, the New Testament church, go back and study this for yourself. In the book of Acts, the New Testament church met in homes and smaller groups, and it was, it was nothing like what we see today. The emphasis is on other things today. The emphasis of the early church was in making disciples, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit present, the teaching of the word. All right, so here's a few other things I want to share. Number one, 
This is a time for rededicating our lives unto the Lord and deeply consecrating ourselves unto him since we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Also consecrate our home as holy unto God. So if we allowed things in our lives or our home that have brought a sense of defilement, again, judgment day honesty. Number two, this is a time that we need to seek the Lord for major breakthroughs in spiritual warfare. Are there stubborn situations in your life that truly need change? Like in the days of the Maccabees or in the days of Moses, Gideon, Hezekiah, and others I've mentioned, we can see that God would bring major breakthroughs in spiritual warfare. And God can turn things around overnight. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, I've shared this so much with you guys, is the days of Hezekiah. He was a direct descendant of David and little Judah that he was over. The greater Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrian military surrounds Jerusalem. He's scared because he knows that they do have the power to take them captive. And he knows what they're going to do to him and his family when they do that. And Hezekiah had been faithful to God. And he began to weep before the Lord in prayer and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And he really cried and said, Lord, I've been faithful to you. Please bring deliverance. Well, Isaiah the prophet lived in those days. And Isaiah gets a word and goes to Hezekiah and tells him, that God's going to deliver you. And so Hezekiah believed the word of the Lord, but he brought the threats of the enemy and laid it before the Lord at the temple, and he remained in prayer and fasting. Everything looked bleak. Everything, I mean, there was no hope. And then all of a sudden, one night, God sends an angel, and 100,000 of those military men out there of Assyria were slaughtered in one night. The rest of them went back where they came from in fear, and God literally turned an impossible situation around in, within 24 hours. Is everybody really realizing what I'm saying here? Your life can be going one way, and it seems so bleak that you're absolutely facing something absolutely impossible. There's no way you look at it, and through prayer and fasting like Hezekiah and really crying out to God, God can turn that thing around and that you can go to bed one night and it's one way, you wake up the next day and something changed and it can be completely different before you go to bed the next night. Number three, seek the Lord for a fresh anointing and a fresh move of the Spirit in your life during this time. The Lord's coming for wise virgins with extra oil. The extra oil speaks of intimacy, but Hanukkah speaks of the oil. It's like the menorah that stayed lit the eight days. This is a time of supernatural oil. How many knows we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit? The devil isn't really threatened by me and you as much as you would like to think, but he's threatened by the anointing on me and you. That's what he's threatened by, the power of God. And Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you go wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you'll be my witnesses. There's a clothing of power from on high to do what Jesus did. And then in number four, like the lit menorah, we're called to be a light, light to the world, live a life that is truly righteous and causes people to know that there's a God in heaven. The middle candle, as I mentioned before, is the servant candle from which all the others get their fire. It represents Jesus as the source. But with that candle, everything else is lit. So in other words, Jesus must be the source of our life, our light, our truth, our revelation, our victory. And then number five, just like the Maccabees had to do, 
and Elijah had to do on Mount Carmel, we need to rebuild the altar of God in our lives. Let our personal prayer lives get back where they need to be again. So I want to ask some questions, and I want you just to, between you and God, judgment day honesty here. But how is your prayer life? How was it a couple years ago? How is it today? Just like Elijah had to rebuild that altar Jezebel tore down, have we really truly rebuilt the altar? Are we in prayer like we need to be? Are we worshiping and we seeking the Lord in, in our secret place like we used to? Or have we waned in our personal prayer lives? Because our personal prayer lives is the source of power in our lives. Personally, that we're in tune with the Lord, we're in step with Him, and we also are moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. And number six, this is a time of tipping the scales of justice. The Lord promises that if an evil judge, you remember the, the parable of the persistent widow, how much more so that woman kept going, that evil judge, he didn't care. He didn't care about her, but she wore him out. And eventually he said, just give the woman what she wants. She'll leave me alone. And Jesus said, look, how much more so will your father in heaven give you, you know, justice and do so quickly? And so this is a time, just like in the days of the Maccabees, that God can provide justice for us. So things that maybe been going a certain way, and I, I know from studying this out years before, there's, it's been popularized here within the last 10 years, but even before that, that when you go before the Lord, there's an element there of him being a righteous judge. And when the enemy has come in to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says that when a thief is caught, he must restore sevenfold. He must restore sevenfold, though it cost him wealth of his house. Under the law of Moses, you saw that if somebody stole something, they had to return it, and then they had to add to it. So there is something about God giving us justice where it's restored back and then with spoils of war. You remember when David, uh, the Amalekites came in, and they raided at Ziklag, and they took everything? And, God, and David said, the men were frustrated with David and said, we're going to stone him. And David cried out to the Lord, and the Lord told him, said, go, I'm with you. You'll overtake them. By the time David caught the Amalekites and defeated them, he not only got back everything that they stole, but he got back everything that they stole from everybody else. So he got all the spoils of war, which was many times multiplied above and beyond anything that they stole from him to begin with. The principle here is, is that God is a God of justice. We're under grace, but the devil ain't. And so what I'm saying is, is that God is going to hold him accountable. Whatever the devil has stolen, he must restore it back and then some. There's going to be spoils of war. You understand? Justice. God is a God of justice. So petition the Lord in the courts for restoration. And number seven, it's also customary at this time to read Psalm 30, but there's a beautiful poem called Moazur, which means just fortress rock. It's read at this time. And so I was going to close this out by reading this, but this is a poem that is among the Jewish people. And it's something that's really interesting because I think that the last part of it may be prophetic. I'm going to show you. So the poem goes like this. It begins with this preface where it says, Rock and fortress of my salvation, to you it is fitting to give praise. May the house of my prayer be built. And there be an offering of thanks when you prepare a place of slaughter for the blaspheming enemy. Then I will lift my voice with a song of dedication of the altar. But then he goes back in time here in this poem. And it says, 
My soul was satiated with tribulations. My strength was sapped with sadness. My life was embittered with difficulty of the enslavement to the kingdom of the calf, talking about Egypt. But with his great hand, he extricated the beloved treasure of the nation. He pulled Israel out of Egypt. The army of Pharaoh and all his descendants sunk like a stone in the depths. So the poem goes back in time, and it's talking about how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And then it goes a little bit forward in time, and it shows this. He brought me to the sanctuary of his holiness, but there too I had no rest. The oppressor, talking about Nebuchadnezzar here, came and exiled me, for I had worshipped foreign gods. And the poisonous wine of sin I did taste. I had barely left my land when the end of the Babylonian exile came. But later, remember, with Zerubbabel, and at the end of the 70 years, I was emancipated. So he remembered how God delivered them out of captivity after the 70 years and brought them back to the land. Number three, you guys will recognize this story. Cut down the towering Cypress, like in the days of Mordecai. The Agagite, son of Hamdado, talking about Haman, requested. You remember how Haman built gallows for Mordecai? But it has become an entrapment for Haman. And in his arrogance, with silence, you raised the head of Mordecai. In other words, you lifted him up over the people, remember? And the enemy, his name you erased. His many sons, his possessions, you hanged on that tree. So God did a great victory there, remember, through Esther to turn it back on Haman and give Israel a great victory because if you remember the story, there were people that came against Israel, but they were allowed to defend themselves. And God brought, of course, a great deliverance. And then now we move into the days of Hanukkah. We go forward a little bit. It says, the Syrian Greeks gathered upon me. In the days of the Hasmoneans, those were the Maccabees, They broke through the walls of my towers and defiled all the oils of the temple. But from the remnant of the flasks, a miracle was wrought for the roses. Talking about Israel. The men of wisdom, like the sages, instituted eight days of song and praise. So it's going through how God has been faithful to deliver his people through the years. And Excuse me. Then the last one, I believe, may be looking to the future of something to come. It says, unleash your holy arm and bring near the final salvation. Avenge your servants from the evil nation, for it has been too long already, and there is no end to the days of evil. This is possibly a prophecy about the coming Antichrist. And it says, repel the red one. That's interesting. This could be the descendants of Edom, possibly like Palestinians, but it also could be just this anti-Semitism that's coming. And raise up for us the seven shepherds, which speaks of the coming Messiah and his righteous ones. So it's, it's interesting because I believe that that poem shows how God has been faithful to bring deliverance down through the ages, and he will be faithful to bring deliverance in the end. Because as you guys know, we've gone through end time prophecy. The days are coming when the Antichrist, as he comes to power, he signs a peace treaty with Israel. God's remnant will be gone, but there's going to be a great slaughter of the Christians in the first half. But then 
the Antichrist is going to send himself in the temple and declare himself to be God and put his, his idol there, his image. He's going to demand Israel to worship him in his image, and they're not going to do it. And so there's going to be a great genocide of the Jews. Two-thirds will be killed, but God's going to supernaturally preserve one-third of them. And it seems that maybe that poem is predicting that day, that it's coming. And that's one of the messages of Hanukkah. Just like Epiphanes had put that big altar in the temple, and he was trying to force Israel to worship Greek gods, there's coming a time when the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple. He's going to defile the temple. Jesus called it the abomination that causes desolation. Okay? He's going to set himself in the temple. He's going to defile it. He's going to defile it with his image. And God's going to have to supernaturally deliver a third of Israel and protect them, probably in Petra in the land of Jordan. But he's going to protect them because when Jesus comes, there has to be an Israel. There has to be a Jerusalem. There has to be a temple. And there has to be a remnant of Jews. Satan knows that, and he's trying to do away with that. But God's still going to make sure that it happens. Satan's doing everything he can to try to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what I've been talking about the last three or four weeks. I'm trying to show people these principalities and powers are trying to maneuver governments. You know, years ago, Europe used to be Christian. You understand that? I know the French Revolution did away with it in some ways, but, but Europe used to be so, such a Judeo-Christian. Europe is secular. Do you see the same pattern happening in America right now? You understand? So there's something very anti-Christ behind the scenes that's trying to just purge the nations from anything to do with any type of Judeo-Christian heritage and make it so secular, the stage is set for the coming of the Antichrist, you see. And as, as we're moving into these times, I believe with all my heart, God has a final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're about to see. He has a final harvest, and then we're going to see the coming of the Lord. And I want to be one of those. Daniel said this in the, in the latter days. He said, those that know their God will do great exploits. And I want to be among those that see great exploits before the Lord comes. And so, Lord, we just thank you. Just like in the days of the Maccabees, we want to be priestly warriors. The priestly, that we're pure, we're holy, we're living a righteous life. But the warrior aspect that you use us to drive back the tides of darkness. And so, Lord, I just thank you that today that we can be like we read about with this, this dynasty of the Maccabees, that we will be among those that are used of you mightily to see great victories and great revival in these last days. Lord, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to pray. If we can, just go ahead and maybe put on some worship quietly in the background. Let's just take a moment here. First off, I want us to really examine ourselves. Now, I want you just where you're at to forget about anybody around you and just really focus for a moment. Is there anything in your life where there was a time that you were closer to the Lord than you are now are y'all hearing what i'm saying please hear me please look this way this we're not done yet i want everybody to really think about this for a moment is there a time in your life when you were closer to the lord than you are now are there things that have crept into your life that are not right between you and god this is the time at hanukkah i want people to really think about this when people